and thank you for tuning in to another excursion into some of the greatest uh, philosophical lessons as well as government lessons in the Federalist Files. I'll be going through Federalist number 51. This one here is one of the most prominent Federalist papers of all time. Uh, and it most importantly lays out the separation of powers and the reason for that separation. Uh, it is titled, The Structure of the Government Must Furnish the Proper Checks and Balances Between the Different Departments, written by James Madison, February 6th, 1788. Topics include organizational structure and elements of each, each branch, give each branch power to defend itself against other branches, and a dependence on the people is the control on government. Different classes will defend a minority from the major majority. I think I've gone through that principle before, but uh, Madison hits on it and accentuates it much more in this paper. So in this paper, Madison, he closes the separation of powers argument put forth and attempts to clarify the principles and structure of the proposed constitution. So this is going to be the very last uh, paper from this specific segment. I don't remember exactly what the segment was called. It was something like um, the articles considered or the constitution considered or the principles therein or something of that nature. Let me see if I could try to find exactly what it was because I'm trying to, I'm drawing a blank. The Republican form of the proposed constitution. That was like this section. That's what I have it written down. So that's going to close this one up and then next we're going to go on to the legislature and he's going to explain the two branches and that part's going to be very interesting that will range from federalist number 52 to federalist number 66 so he starts off here he states and i quote to what expedient then shall we resort for maintaining in practice the necessary partition of power among the several departments as laid down in the constitution the only answer that can be given is that as all these exterior provisions are found to be inadequate, the de defect must be supplied by so contriving the interior structure of the government as that its several constituents constituent parts may by their mutual relations be the means of keeping each other in their proper places, end quote. So he's saying, what's the reason for these several departments? Why is it that we have three different branches of government? What is the reasoning for that? Why is that provision supposed to be adequate? And he goes on in this paper to examine it, and he explains that it's to keep, he says, it, the means of keeping each other in their proper places. They're all going to work as a safeguard against each other. So he goes on, he states next, and I quote, It is evident that each department should have a will of its own and consequently should be so con constituted that the members of each should have as little agency as possible in the appointment of the members of the others. Were this principle rigorously adhered to, it would require that all the appointments for the Supreme Executive, Legislative, and Judiciary Magistries should be drawn from the same fountain of authority, the people through channels having no communication whatever with one another, end quote. So he's going to go on to explain why this is, why this pr principle is just unrealistic, it's, un it's impractical. The idea of having completely independent departments that are not reliant on each other at all, and uh, there is very little agency that one has on another, 
So one has a very little impact on the other. It is, um, it sounds great theoretically, but in practice, it's it's pretty much impossible. Because then it would have to be a direct democracy where there's a vote on legitimately every single thing in government. Which I don't even know if we'd be able to pull that off today. If we did, actually, it would probably benefit the Republicans. In all honesty, if we had a system like that where every single thing was voted on every single day, because what we'd do is we probably have a system that was devised that use the internet and you'd go online you'd probably log in with some sort of social security code and then you would vote on whatever the topics are of that day or that week and i could see republicans considering they're much more well informed they would know how to vote and democrats almost if they went to their uh, their media coverage and the uh, the legacy media class told them what to vote that is the only possible chance that they would be able to figure it out because I think they legitimately don't know policy. They can't read law. Um, Democrat voter, for sure, the base is a lot less aware uh, of the current events, current news, and they're unaware of what provisions and the ramifications for government mandates are. Whereas the, the Republicans or the right side, I guess you would call them moreover, are, are a lot much more informed on the daily political events. So he goes on here. Next he states, and I quote, uh, does he say, okay, so I'm there. I'm trying to figure out where I am. So next he states, and I quote, perhaps such a plan of constructing the several departments would be less difficult in practice than it may in contemplation appear. Some difficulties, however, and some additional expense would attend the execution of it. Some deviations, therefore, from the principle must be admitted. In the constitution of the judiciary department in particular, it might be inexpedient to insist vigorously on the principle, end quote. So vigorously on the principle that um, it should come directly from the people, I think. And I think, I, I know why he says this. He says that, well, he's going to go on. Hold, I'll, I'll explain it in this next quote. He states, and I quote, First, because peculiar qualifications being essential in the members, the primary consideration ought to be the, to select that mode of choice which best secures these qualifications. Secondly, because the permanent tenure by which the appointments are held in that department must soon destroy all sense of dependence on the authority conferring them. It is equally evident that the members of each department should be as little dependent as possible on those of the others, for the emoluments annexed to their offices were the executive magistrates or judges not independent of the legislature in this particular, their independence in every other would be merely nominal." So first off, I wanted to uh, address, in the very beginning, he's talking about the Supreme Court, and he says, the Supreme Court really shouldn't be selected by the people directly, because there's certain qualifications and considerations that need to be accounted for, and people that are in the legislative department and the executive department would be much more aware, as well as the fact that these, these members are lifetime members, they serve life terms in the Supreme Court, which means that they are complete, they should have no problem being independent of the other two branches because of that reason the only way that they can really get kicked out is it would be an impeachment and you would need an overbearing majority to get an impeachment through a supreme court i don't even know if a supreme court justice has ever actually been uh been impeached before in all honesty i don't think it's ever been done and then at the very end uh, another important part of this segment 
he says he talks about the dependent that they should be a little dependent on each other and then he says the executive magistrate is in the president as well as the supreme court and all the other judges uh they should be independent of the legislature in terms of their emoluments their emoluments is in how much they get paid to do their job because that's important if you're reliant all the time on the legislative branch on getting paid then you're going to be much more um likely to likely to switch a vote on something and be much more on the side of the legislative department in your voting process, which makes sense. Uh, it would almost be used as a blackmail chip, the emolument. So there's certain specific provisions in the Constitution, the judges. I think, I want to say every single couple of years or something, there's a, there's a change in their pay and the president, his emolument or his pay can't be taken away, can't be modified during his term. Those are the way those rules work. There's something with the with the judges in particular. I just can't remember exactly, but there is a safeguard on that as well. So he states that the power to appoint government officials should be of the people, that no branch should be constituted to the complete power of appointment to members of the other branches. But due to inexpediency, additional expenses, and execution of a complete direct democracy, there is just cause for a deviation from that principle. In result, Madison believed, and I quote, the great security against the gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachments of the others. Which makes sense. It's just safeguards. It's pretty much defenses. Uh, for example, I think he cites it in this one. The executive branch has the quali qualified negative, also known as their veto power. That veto power could be used to protect themselves and their position. And then the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, their power is the fact that they are there for life sentences. And they don't have to worry about getting reelected or, or um, reappointed to their position that they're already in. So next he goes on, he states, and I quote, It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? End quote. So pretty much, and, and I've actually, have, I've mentioned this, the, the point of the Constitution is to attempt to correct or remedy as many fallibilities of man that are there. Uh, the Constitution was to attempt to eliminate, knowing that it wasn't going to be a perfect document, but do its best to eliminate all of the, the hu of human nature, all of the fallibilities of, uh, and the failings of human nature. And that's really all that he's saying. So Madison, he continues to characterize man as flawed. And if they were angels, government wouldn't be necessary. So this is a great quote. It's very uh, profound that he has next. He states, and I quote, If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal con controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the man a dependence on the people is, no doubt, the primary control on the government. But experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. 
This is very profound. So he says if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If the angels were governing, then you wouldn't even need a constitution because they wouldn't overstep their boundaries. They would handle everything the right way. In this case, you have men which aren't angels. They, there needs to be some sort of set government. And then the government also is going to be appointed. There's, they're going to be of the people who are ready or known not to be perfect. So the first job of the government is to govern the people. And then the second obligation that they have is to control themselves from usurping their power. And that's the reason that they're supposed to be dependent on the people. So there's kind of a safeguard there. There's like a 50-50 give and take. That's how it's supposed to work. I mean, it doesn't really work that way now. I just saw they have some sort of gun legislation up too in Congress, which is amazing. Uh, today, I, you know, I, I pre-record things early. Uh, uh, these in particular, the Federalist Paper uh, podcast, I, I will record them earlier just for case of time for planning for the week and today we had biden i didn't watch the full video yet but apparently it was only like 23 minutes long he addressed the nation for the first time didn't take any questions from from the uh from the press and i just watched a short clip is about a minute and a half long and it is him going on rambling about how we need to unite and the fourth of july is going to be the day that apparently the entire country opens up and he's talking about uniting meanwhile your house is is passing through uh, gun control legislation and then you, you're telling us that you want to unite with us i mean it's just it's just so reprehensible and it's disgusting so i'm gonna go on he states next and i quote we see it particularly displayed in all the subordinate distributions of power where the constant aim is to divide and arrange the several offices in such a manner as that each may be a check on the others on the other that the private interest of other of every individual may be a sentinel over the public rights. These inventions of prudence cannot be less requisite in the distribution of the supreme powers of the state, but it is not possible to give to each department an equal power of self-defense. In Republican government, the legislative authority ne necessarily predominates. End quote. So what he's saying here is the legislative authority, we're going to try to make all the branches equal. It's not going to happen. The legislative authority is always much stronger, and there's going to be a remedy for that that he's actually going to go through very briefly, and it makes sense. And and then after this paper, he, like I said, he spends something like another 12 papers talking about that specific aspect of government, uh, the legislature. And then I think he also says there should be a distribution of power. He's When he's saying... What we're looking at, he's looking at state officials. He's talking about in the distribution of power. And then I think he also, oh, this is the this is the most important part probably of this quote, where he says, where the constant aim is to divide and arrange the several offices in such a manner as that each may be a check on the other, that the private interest of every individual may be a sentinel over the public rights, which is very interesting. So he says the private the private individual, the private citizen, their their private rights within their home, you know, do govern as you see yourself, you know, as you please, live as you please. Uh, it may be a sentinel over the public rights, which I think is very interesting. So the rights of the people will be stronger than that of the government is what he's trying to say there. And that's going to be a very interesting because then he goes on to explain, he gets a little bit deeper into it as well. So next, Madison, he establishes that the legislative branch predominates the other two. Because of this, it is imperative that the legislative authority shall be divided into two branches. He states, and I quote, and to render them 
by different modes of election and different principles of action. So he's just talking about the legislative branch. Uh, this action would keep them a little connected with each other, in turn guarding against dangerous encroachments. On the other hand, Madison details that the executive should be fortified. So he's going to go on to explain these uh, two branches or these two two chambers of the uh, the Congress, and then how the executive should be fortified. So next he states, and I quote, The remedy for this inconveniency is to divide the legislature into different branches and to render them by different modes of election and different principles of action as little connected with each other as the nature of their common functions and their common dependence on the society will admit. It may even be necessary to guard against dangerous encroachments by still further precautions as the weight of the legislative authority requires that it should be thus divided the weakness of the executive may require on the other hand that it should be fortified end quote so if you split the house or, or if you split the legislative body in half you have the house of representatives and the senate and you give them different jobs uh and keep them somewhat independent from each other, then it's much more difficult for them to concert together and attempt to uh, usurp their power and implement tyranny, uh, tyrannical policies on the people. And and when he says fortified, he explain he starts to explain the veto power. He doesn't actually use the word of veto, but he expl he calls it an absolute negative. So he states next, and I quote: "An absolute negative on the legislature appears at first view to be the natural defense with which the executive magistrate should be armed, but perhaps it would be neither altogether safe nor alone sufficient." On ordinary occasions, it might not be exerted with the requisite firmness, and on extraordinary occasions, it might be perfidiously abused, end quote. So this is why he he'll go on, I think, in, I don't know which paper, when he says what they're going to have, they're going to have a qualified negative rather than an absolute. An absolute negative would be a veto that would automatically shoot down any type of law that's trying to be uh, implemented by the legislative branch. Thus, thus, he thinks that the president, in this case, would abuse that power or they wouldn't use that power because they know that uh, it would instantly shoot down the legislation, which, which would make the president kind of look like the bad guy and they're kind of afraid of getting impeached from their position because of it. So that's the reason they implement the, the qualified negative, which is the veto power. The president goes to veto it. Then after he vetoes, it gets shot back to the uh, the Congress for a two-thirds vote in both chambers to override the veto, which I think is a very fair process. Um, I'm trying to think if he ever actually has a paper where he has to defend that process. I'm sure he does because a lot of uh, his dissenters had a problem with pretty much every provision in the Constitution. So next he goes on. Furthermore, Madison outlines two important points of view applicable to the federal system under the proposed Constitution. So I think this is the part... No, okay, so he doesn't get to... He, he explains federalism here. That's why I think this paper, this paper is so, so awesome because he explains so many different principles of our government. He explains how certain things need to be split up, modified, you know, some, some parts are stronger than others, and then the, the core foundational almost like a philosophical principle of why we have this federalism structure. So he states these of these uh, two points, he goes through both of them. He says, first, 
In a single republic, all the power surrendered by the people is submitted to the administration of a single government, and the usurpations are guarded against by a division of the government into distinct and separate departments. In the compact or the compound Republic of America, the power surrendered by the people is first divided between two distinct governments, and then the portion allotted to each subdivided among distinct and separate departments. Hence, a double security arises to the rights of the people. So he, he says usually in a single republic, in the way that republics used to run over in Europe, you had the, the grand government, government, the general or the federal government, and then from there... That was it. Uh, it's it divided and split into separate departments from there. You know, it had whatever so many branches, and that was it. Now, in this, they call it a compound republic in America, also known as federalism. You have the federal government, and then you have your individual state governments as well, that also split into different branches, and that's that's a double security for the people because the state government will defend the people against the federal government. The federal government is supposed to defend the people from the uh, state government, and he goes on. He asserts. And I quote, Hence a double security arises to the rights of the people. The different governments will control each other at the same time that each will be controlled by itself. So they will control each other and then they'll also attempt to control themselves. <laughs> so second, Madison, he illustrates that a constitutional republic is not only to protect citizens from government, but also to protect one part of the society uh, from the other, giving credence and security to the minority from the majority group. And this is another very important principle. It really isn't thought of often. He states, and I quote, Second, it is of great importance in, the Republi in a republic not only to guard the society against the oppression of its rulers, but to guard one part of the society against the injustice of the other part. Different interests necessarily exist in different classes of citizens. If a majority be united by a common interest, the rights of the minority will be insecure. There are but two methods of providing against this evil. The one by creating a will in the community independent of the majority, that is, of the society itself. The other by comprehending in the society so many separate descriptions of citizen as will render an unjust combination of a majority of the whole a very improb improbable, if not impractical impracticable geez so he said what he's trying to say is you have two different methods to stop the majority from oppressing the minority and this has happened i think this happened in france whenever the uh the religious leader or, or whoever the king was would switch over if they were protestant or if they were catholic they would just kill each other in mass with the guillotine everything what he's saying is the two different methods that you have to solve this or resolve this problem. It says the one is by creating a will in the community independent of the majority. Now that to him, and he'll explain in this next quote, that's like a king. Or creating a monarch, somebody that is so powerful that he could take out the majority. Or the other one is to split society into so many different descriptions and, and uh, different types of citizens that it's almost impossible to create a majority. It, it would be impossible to have a majority group if it was split up so equally. Because then once you have, let's say it's split up into 10, each, each citizen group is only 10% of the uh, population. It's much more difficult for 10% to oppress the other 90%. So next he goes on, and, and this is where he explains the whole the, how the first method is erroneous. 
He states, and I quote, The first method prevails in all governments possessing a hereditary or self-appointed authority. This, at best, is but a precarious security, because a power independent of the society may as well espouse the unjust views of the major as the rightful interests of the minor party, and may possibly be turned against both parties. The second method will be exemplified in the Federal Republic of the United States, whilst all authority in it will be derived from and, in, and dependent on the society, the society itself will be broken into so many parts, interests, and classes of citizens that the rights of individuals or of the minority will be in little danger from interested combinations of the majority, end quote. So if you are able to break up the society into so many different parts, interests, and classes of citizens, the rights of individuals will be secure in this because there won't really be a majority to take out any type of minority group. And then the minority group will also be kind of more pervasive and, and a little convoluted on who the bad guys, who you view as the bad guys are, who, who the minority group is and who the majority group is. So he goes on, he states next, and I quote, In a free government, the security for civil rights must be the same as that for religious rights. It consists in the one case in the multiplicity of interests and in the other in the multiplicity of sex. sex. The degree of security in both cases will depend on the number of interests and sex. And this may be presumed to depend on the extent of country and number of people comprehended under the same government and quote so sex not s-e-x s-e-c-t-s different subsects essentially is what he's what he's uh, referring to so he will say that the, he's saying here is that the security of the civil rights must be the same as that for religious rights and now what we're seeing in our current society is that the civil rights are overbearing the religious rights but what he's saying is they should be tantamount to each other Meaning religious freedom, everyone should be, no one should be compelled by government to do something they don't want to do at the behest of what somebody else wants done. Um, and the government should protect the religious freedoms and as well as the civil liberties. But they should not be compelled to do anything through some sort of government hand or government boot. And what he's saying is the degree of security will depend on the number of interests and subsections. And this is presumed depending on the extent of the country. The extent of the country actually benefits this this idea and put and putting it in action because if you have such a large country, so many different individuals in different areas, it's it's more difficult to find a centralized enemy or a centralized uh, source of factional violence. So he argues the remedy for this is to, like the government, break the society into many parts due to the extent of the country and number comprehended to it. This is a practical defense against the, this threat and the threats like factional violence or the majority trying to overtake the minority. So next he states, and I quote, this view of the subject must particularly recommend a proper federal system to all the sincere and considerate friends of republican government since it shows that in exact proportion as the territory of the union may be formed into more circumscribed confederacies or states oppressive combinations of a majority will be facilitated the best security under the republican forms for the rights of every class of citizens will be diminished and consequently the stability and independence of some members 
some member of the government, the only other security must be proportionately increased. So what he's saying is if there's no union uh, and all we have is just these confederacies or these states, then we will have majorities versus minorities because there's no safeguard on that. Uh, there will just be those, those, there's no, not as many subsections, there's not as many, the government, and here is also hinting at the fact that the federal government is supposed to protect the rights of the citizens as well. So if there's oppression coming from states, the federal government's supposed to step in and protect that, protect the people's civil liberties and religious rights as well. So thus Madison, he concludes that the breakdown of many different citizens form a multitude of uh, different types or, or backgrounds that will suppress infighting and factionalism. Madison, he states, and I quote, justice is the end of government. Oh, this is a very profound quote, by the way. He says, he starts off, justice is the end of government. It is the end of civil society. It ever has been and ever will be pursued until it be obtained or until liberty be lost in the pursuit. In a society under the forms of which the stronger faction can readily unite and oppress the weaker, anarchy may be may as truly be said to reign as in a state of nature, where the weaker individuals individual is not secured against the violence of the stronger, and as in the latter state, even the stronger individuals are prompted by the uncertainty of their condition to submit to a government which may protect the weak as well as themselves so in the former state will the the more powerful factions or parties be gradually or gradually induced by a like motive to wish for a government which will protect all parties the weaker as well as the more powerful end quote so what makes this one so important and uh, so profound is that the very the very end part he says even these majority groups knowing that there will be an insurance of, of their liberty and their freedoms will be much friendlier to a, uh, to a government, and they would actually submit to a government because of that. Which makes sense, because when you're the big dog, everybody knows that it's inevitably that you're not going to be the big dog forever, and eventually there'll be a much stronger force that comes and takes your reign over. But the most important part of this, of this quote is the very beginning, where he says, justice is the end of government. And, and when he means the end, he means the point that is, that is the main aim and the focus of government. It is the end of civil society. It ever has been and ever will be pursued until it be obtained or until liberty be lost in the pursuit. So we will always fight for liberty is what he means. Uh, we will go as hard as we can. It will forever be pursued in a civil society and as well as justice or until liberty be lost in the pursuit. In a society under the forms of which the stronger faction can readily unite and oppress the weaker, anarchy may as truly be said to reign as in a state of nature. So if you don't have, essentially if you have no federal government, you have anarchy, is what he's saying. If you just have no government structure in general, because then you have a majority that will gang up. And it's almost like if you actually think about it, it's, it's like the Native American tribes before we got here. Before the, uh, I guess the you call it the Mayflower, is that the Mayflower or what's his name? William Bradford, I can't remember his name. I think he did. Yeah, he came over on the Mayflower. It's the Mayflower Compact. He was like the general or whatever. Before they came here, uh, even before Columbus, 
you had a bunch of native tribes that would fight and kill each other because there was no government that that was anarchy um some tribes were much friendlier to, than others but for the most part a lot of tribes would actually enslave other tribes and then there was the um the caribs which the caribbean islands are named after the caribs or cannibal they were uh, cannibalizing other groups so that's kind of the system that was here before before uh the united states before the british colonies and they came to colonize the lands before all of that it was anarchy that's the best way to try to explain it so i think me personally uh my own personal views i am a lot more libertarian leaning uh in my focus but a lot of those leanings come straight from the constitution i do believe there has to be some sort of a government i do i know there's a lot of people that don't believe that uh there's anarchists that think that everybody would be fat and happy and they would all respect each other if there was no government to enforce anything i just i don't think that i just don't think that would happen i think human nature we are very tribal in nature and we would eventually get into different tribes that would fight each other and try to overtake a land over one another so i do see government's uh role in this in this particular situation so he continues, he states next, and I quote, In the extended republic of the United States and among the great variety of interests, parties, and sects which it embraces, a coalition of a majority of the whole society could seldom take place on any other principles than those of justice and the general good. End quote. So he's saying in a system where there's a bunch of different interests, parties, subsections, uh, the demographics are very diverse. Uh, in terms of ideology and interests, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm not referring to race or ethnicity, because that, that wouldn't have any difference. I'm more referring to thoughts, interests, ideology, in many different ways, uh, varieties. If you're more diverse in that nature, then you'd be much more seldom to have or a coalition of the majority of the whole society could seldom take place, so you wouldn't have some sort of majority try to take over people, and uh, and the only principles that would be passed, and any legislation passed through the government would be for the greater good, or the general good, and, the ju and justice. So in summation, under the proposed constitution, in comparison to the current model, citizens will feel more secure and more willing to buy into a system that ensures that liberty and security will be fortified from anarchy. Even the stronger groups that could conjure up a majority against a minority will be much more willing to certify the Constitution. The safety of the minority from the majority is a very crucial principle in the modern era in comparison to many other uh, European countries such as France that fought wars of factional violence for centuries between religious groups that held the kingship. So to, to end here what he says, and this is, this is pretty important here, the very beginning is uh, much more important. He states, and I quote, Whilst there being thus less danger to a minor from the will of a major party, there must be less pretext also to provide for the security of the former by introducing into the government a will not dependent on the latter, or in other words, a will independent of the society itself. It is no less certain 
then it is important, notwithstanding the contrary opinions which have been entertained, that the larger the society provided it lie within a practical sphere, the more dully capable it will be of self-government. And happily for the Republican cause, the practicable sphere may be carried to a very great extent by a judicious modification and mixture of the federal principle, end quote. So the very end, the very end of this excerpt here, talks about the Republican cause, talks about how the federal principle can be used in vast uh, amounts of land. It has a very good sphere. It, it can be applied very distantly, which is true. And more importantly, in the very beginning of this excerpt, he says we are introducing a government almost like, in my context, the way I would put it, is the majority will not be able to do anything to the minority, and the minority won't have any danger from the majority because we're, we're introducing a form of government that is not dependent on uh, the majority. They're dependent on the society itself. It's, it's, it's independent. Uh, the best way I can explain it this quote is I think of centralized and decentralized. And what he's saying is this is a decentralized system. But you say, oh, well, there's there's different authorities. What are you talking about? There's state government, there's, there's federal government. Yeah, but then there's also the people themselves. And then there's also different branches of the uh, federal and the state governments. It is a decentralized, it's supposed to be, it's, I mean, not anymore, but it was meant to be a decentralized system where the power is spread out pretty evenly uh, amongst the people, the legislative bodies, the, the state governments, the federal governments, the court systems. That, that was the point. That was the point of the system. It was to take all the centralized power and pass it out somewhat evenly. And then having that set up, it works as a safeguard. You're not going to have one group that overbears the other group. And that's really throughout this entire paper. It is... You know, I'm actually going to title this then, The Decentralization of Government. And that's really, I think, the biggest point that he attempts to exude throughout this paper. So that's really it for this one. I greatly appreciate everyone tuning in. I hope I uh, did this paper justice. I know this is one of the most prominent of the uh, Federalist Papers. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, everybody, please drop the mic. Let people know about the podcast. The page is getting pretty big on Facebook. I'm almost around a 1,000 followers on the Facebook page. And on Rumble, please check out, and I'll have it in the description below. I'll have the Rumble page as well as the Facebook page, the links and everything included. Uh, click on that. Hit it with a follow. Hit it with a subscribe, please, uh, on either Rumble or on Facebook. On Facebook. I have about 1,000 almost, and Rumble, I have 1.9 thousand, so 1.9K. Uh, on YouTube, I got pretty much nothing. YouTube has been suppressing my content hard. I get maybe two or three views per video, whereas when I turn on Rumble, I'm getting way more than that. So, uh, yeah, please check out those pages. I always leave my email in there if anybody has any thoughts, concerns, they want to shoot me an email or something, or um, if you have anything for the current event, podcast that I go over if you want to send me something for that that you want me to cover in the show something that I missed uh, anything of that nature but uh, other than that I greatly appreciate you for tuning in and I will see you next time